Hey, Talking Feds team, take a moment to tell us what you like and what you'd like us to improve about this podcast. Head to our website, talkingfeds.com, and participate in our listener survey. It only takes a few minutes, and you can complete the survey anonymously. Thanks. Welcome back to Talking Feds, a prosecutor's roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. I'm a former United States attorney and deputy assistant attorney general and a current Washington Post columnist. Today, we're having a special podcast about the federal death penalty, and we've got three former feds all former United States attorneys with extensive experience to cover the topic. First, we're joined by Carmen Ortiz, counsel at Anderson and Krieger. Carmen is the former United States attorney for the District of Massachusetts in Boston, where she served from 2009 to 2017. She was the first woman and the first Hispanic person to serve in that position. During her tenure, she oversaw the investigation and litigation of many significant and complex criminal and civil cases, including the prosecution of Whitey Bulger. And then one very noteworthy capital case. What was that, Carmen? Well, the one that, you know, across America drew a lot of attention was the Boston Marathon bombings. One of the culprits, Jokar Sarnayev, lived to then be processed in court to be, he was indicted and he was charged and uh, convicted uh, of the underlying offenses. He, he I think the younger brother, is that right? He was the younger brother. He was uh, 19 at the time of the, the commission of the offense. But I do want to just quickly say that very notable as well and unusual for, for Massachusetts was the capital case of Gary Sampson, who was a serial killer and killed three people. And what happened there? Give us the quick skinny. The quick skinny is that um, Gary Sampson actually pled to the underlying offenses and went to, to, uh, to trial on the sentencing phase. The jury imposed the death penalty, and 11 years later, the trial judge granted a new trial, uh, a new penalty phase, saying that a juror had, not, had, had lied to the court, and so granted a, a new trial, and we pushed it forward, and uh, Mr. Sampson was again, the jury imposed the sentence of death. And we'll talk more about this, but that's really sort of a feature of the the system, you know, 11 years, and then it's overturned. That's not that unusual in this area, as we're going to find. Okay, second, Johnny Sutton. Johnny, not John, please. Johnny Sutton, who served as the U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Texas from 2001 to 2009, during which he chaired the Attorney General's Advisory Group of U.S. Attorneys. And he is currently a partner with the Ashcroft Group, working with the former Attorney General, John Ashcroft. As U.S. Attorney, he brought the Sherman Fields case in which a federal prisoner escaped from local detention, went, killed his girlfriend who was pregnant with another man's child. That was a capital case. He also, as a state prosecutor, personally tried and put on death row three different defendants had the experience with some of them of many years later, the Supreme Court overturning the verdicts. But he also was involved very notably here with the first modern execution in uh, the federal system. Johnny, can you tell us briefly about your work there? Sure. I was 
part of the Bush Cheney transition team for the Department of Justice back in 2000 and 2001. And whenever there's one government changes to another government, especially when the parties change, there's big changes inside the Department of Justice and the political side. So we came in to make those changes. Of course, that that election was contested. So it was about five weeks late getting everything done. Of course, when we got our memo turned in to show who our political appointees were going to be in different sections. We pulled President Clinton's memo to see when his was, and he was a week later than us. You know, when you, when you have no time, you get your homework done fast. But as a part of that, you have to deal with all the things coming up. Bob Mueller was the acting DAG at the time, so and Ashcroft was not even confirmed yet. So one of the things that was coming up that we had to deal with was the execution of Timothy McVeigh. And the United States government had not executed anybody since 1963. We didn't even have a, we didn't have a death chamber. We didn't. So there was a lot of work to be done. It was uh, a lot of work and had to reform a lot of things. And we're going to talk about the kind of protocol, but I assume at that point you were just inventing the wheel. There wasn't really a protocol. We subsequently have a very routinized and detailed system. But at the time, you just had to figure out what was both fair and would stand legal judgment down the line, yes? Yeah, there was always been a pretty solid protocol. It's probably more solid now. You know, Rod and Carmen can probably talk better to that. But since there hadn't been an execution in, you know, decades and decades, uh, that was just something, you know, literally in Terre Haute, we had to build that situation, which is not something that's very typical. Of course, other states had you know, we're routinely executing people. So they were places you could go to get assistance, but it was something that the federal government hadn't done. So it was something that we only had a few months because as you remember, McVeigh had waived his appeals and was volunteering for the death penalty. So it was coming up fast and a date was set. There you go. And then third, we are very fortunate to welcome Rod Rosenstein to Talking Feds. Many of you, of course, know him already because of his recent tenure as Deputy Attorney General. But Rod came to that job after a long and extremely distinguished tenure in the department under both Republicans and Democrats as United States Attorney. When he was confirmed for the deputy position, he'd been the longest serving U.S. attorney in the country, I think, 12 years. He joined as a trial attorney. He and I were kind of young punks together in the department. I remember him, and I hope he, me. Uh, But he was then counsel to the deputy attorney general, associate independent counsel to Ken Starr, and then appointed to the position of United States attorney for the District of Maryland by President George W. Bush, where, as I say, he served for 12 years. He was thereafter nominated and served as deputy U.S. attorney general, a tenure which has been well covered and we won't be delving into today. We want to focus on his experience as actually bringing capital cases. Do you even have a sense in your in your 12 years? I have a sense you had many, Rod. Do you know how many that office had while you were U.S. attorney? Well, there were quite a few, Harry, and I recall working with you in the Clinton administration in the mid-90s. Yeah. I yeah. won't comment on whether either one of us qualified <laughs> as a punk at the time. We were certainly young, but uh, but you know, we were in the department really at the, at the dawn of the modern death penalty era right. when the new statutes went into effect and the department started to develop these protocols. And Janet Reno, of course, put in place the protocol that still exists that requires the attorney general personally to sign off not just on seeking but even not seeking potentially death-eligible cases, and I hope we can talk a bit about that procedure. Uh, So then as U.S. attorney, I overlap with both uh, Johnny and Carmen, and we developed these 
procedures in the justice manual that have evolved over time. And actually, when I worked with Johnny on the Violent Crime Subcommittee of the AGAC, and also with Carm on the AGAC in the Obama administration, we've made modifications to it over time, uh, as I think is appropriate, as we've uh, recognized that there were ways to improve the, the way the department handles it as a procedural matter. And also, as you know, there have been substantive changes because attorneys general have differed in their uh, tendency or their inclination to be more or less aggressive in seeking the death penalty. In Maryland, as U.S. attorney, we had a lot of death-eligible cases. As you can imagine, Maryland, uh, particularly Baltimore City, has a very high violent crime rate, and many of our cases were death-eligible because the defendants were involved in uh, committing murders. Uh, but we sought death in only a fraction of those cases. So there were many cases pending when I arrived as U.S. attorney in 2005. In modern times, the death penalty has been imposed twice in Maryland, once uh, it was a case that was the pen- federal death penalty has been involved death twice. Been yeah. imposed twice. Once uh, in 2000, case indicted and prosecuted in the Clinton administration. The case is still pending. Uh, the defendant is on death row and continue to litigate as they do ceaselessly, but has not been reversed. The other one is a case that was pending when I arrived in 2005 and resulted in a death sentence a few months after I started. And that defendant also uh, is still uh, pending. Yeah, I, you know, I think the average tenure for people after trial to execution, if they are executed, is something like in 10 years. And, the, and the, just the practical complications for trying to, let's say you've got a new trial and you have to go unearth the old files, et cetera, can be daunting. All right. So look, it's a it's obviously a contentious issue, the death penalty in general, perhaps more so than the federal death penalty in particular. But people have strong Feelings. I, I should probably lay my cards on the table that as U.S. attorney, I sought the death penalty, even though I'm personally opposed to it. But that's just, I think, goes with the territory for United States attorneys. I was just going to put out what Rod says, puts in mind like a few nuts and bolts that I think people would be interested in. I was surprised to learn there hasn't been a federal execution. There have been three. But since 2003, the Attorney General Bill Barr has now announced that they're going to try to resume. And there are five prisoners who are whose dates have been set, I believe, in December and January for execution. There are now, I think, a little over 60 people on death row, one uh, woman, the other uh, men. They were, there have been 68 or so who have been put on death row since about 2000. Three were executed. Clinton and Obama together took three off death row, and that leaves the 62 that are pending. They're all, when they are executed, as happened when the case of McVeigh, the three that have been are all in Terre Haute under that protocol by lethal injection. And there's been quite a, an effort to make that as not both humane, but and also impervious to challenge as possible. Okay, I mean, those are the basic nuts and bolts. Let's start with a sort of general philosophical or, or maybe you would say practical question. Why do we have a federal death penalty in the first place? We know there are certain crimes, but big ones, espionage, murder, treason, if we had them, large-scale drug trafficking. But for the most part, they would be death eligible in the state system. So what's the purpose that Congress has passed them, why we need them? In fact, do we need them? Is it an important thing in the system to have a federal death penalty as supplementary to state death penalties. Let me start with you, Johnny, because in Texas, as you've mentioned, 
probably the most in the nation, if I'm not mistaken. Why do you also want a federal death penalty to be available? My opinion would be that I would normally defer to the states to carry out death penalty prosecutions. Uh, And I think that's normally what's done. Not always. Sometimes there's a real strong federal interest. For example, in examples of terrorism or international crime, international drug kingpins. What about McVeigh? Would you say that was a righteous federal death penalty and why? I think it certainly was. I mean, you know, he blew up a federal building. 168 people died. There was a daycare. I mean, it was a horrible, horrible case, just an unbelievable tragedy and, and grotesque murder. So there I think you clearly have a federal interest. I would usually argue that the feds are not going to be the first to seek the death penalty on these cases. Most of these are murders plus something else, kidnapping, robbery, you know, mass murder, those kind of things that normally the states can handle this. They try these quite often. The feds don't try them as much. The federal government is usually better, federal prosecutors are usually better at doing more complicated cases. But there are times, and another one is the Tanzanian and Kenyan embassy bombings, where it's an international matter. Thousands of foreigners died, thousands of Africans died, and many Americans died. I mean, that seems like a perfect one to me, because what state is possibly going to handle that Exactly. One, right? It would be very difficult. So it's a balance there. But I get, my instinct is keep it close to the people and have it be just for those extra special, grotesque cases where... The defendant is an extreme terror, extremely dangerous, and, and needs that kind of retribution that the death penalty gives. Yeah. Well, yes, although it can often be in the state system, though. But, Carmen, the marathon bombing, you know, Massachusetts doesn't have the death penalty. But did you have a tussle with it was such a high-profile crime? Did the state prosecutors want to try to handle that, or did they take a step back right away? I had two separate experiences there were the, the initial bombings occurred in Suffolk County and the Suffolk County district attorney from the moment that the explosions occurred. And we arrived with the FBI and I was working closely with the Boston police commissioner. He was all hands off. And this case is your case. This is a federal offense. This is terrorism. And once you, you described it that way and, and termed it that way, there was no question that we were going, we were in charge and we were taking over and, and, and we did. What happened was, if you remember, shortly after the bombings on that Monday, after the, we identified the individuals by their look and their physical features, but still were looking for them, they went on the run and they killed a young officer at MIT. Now that's in Middlesex County. And the Middlesex District Attorney desperately wanted to try that case. An officer had been killed in her territory, and she felt that they should go forward. And so they actually brought charges of first-degree murder against Jokar Sarnayev, but we took the lead and we took over the case, and we tried and combined and handled all of the, the wrongful conduct in the case that we brought. Rod, I mean, your thoughts, if we were writing on a blank slate and just deciding whether to have a federal death penalty or not or, or leave these these cases to state authorities would you would you advocate for one and 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 why when would you really want to have one for the in the system overall well the death penalty of course is not a modern form of punishment it's actually an ancient penalty uh used much less frequently today than it would have been in ancient times and biblical times but i think that uh, if you look at the range of cases that would potentially be eligible for the death penalty uh, there are really three categories that stand out as cases that might merit it. First are cases where 
there's such a large scale of violence, and the McVeigh case in Oklahoma City is a good example of that. Second is where the crime had a significant impact on the community, and I think Carmen's prosecution of Jokar Tsarnaev is a good illustration of that, the impact of uh, that crime on the community and on the country uh, was so dramatic. And then third, cases such as Johnny identified that uh, are so horrific in the nature of the crime. I think Johnny referred to it as extra special grotesque. Yeah. And you know, that may apply to one of the cases we prosecuted in Maryland involving a defendant by the name of Kevin Lighty, who killed three young women for no particular reason, dumped their bodies on the Baltimore-Washington Parkway, and they were thereafter run over by vehicles. All right, but like effect on the community, extra special grotesque, why doesn't that actually create an argument for state rather than federal prosecution? Why do you want the feds in those categories? Well, it may, but you know, one of the challenges is Johnny uh, is from Texas, where they have and use the death penalty frequently in state courts. Carmen and I in Massachusetts and Maryland actually have very different experiences. Right. Maryland very rarely sought it historically and in recent years doesn't seek it at all. So if you want to have some degree of nationwide uniformity, then the proposal to defer to the states is not going to accomplish that. You're going to have cases where defendants would face death in Texas, uh, but would not face it in Maryland or Massachusetts. So I think if you're interested in uniformity, that would actually militate in favor of the federal government stepping in in appropriate cases. Uh, And so as you're aware, one of the things that we don't take into consideration in reviewing the cases federally is what the penalty might be in the state. We, we don't grant any deference to that. Now, it mm-hmm. might become relevant in determining you know, what the jury is likely to do with the case, but we don't consider state law in evaluating whether or not to pursue death in the federal case. Well, let's talk about then what we do consider. So a little bit about this protocol. Rod made this important point that many people don't know, which is it's the attorney general's determination, not simply whether final determination, whether to seek or not to seek. And that's really the Department of Justice speaks with one voice when it's a a matter of deciding who is going to be death eligible. So you don't consider the fact that in a given state, the death penalty isn't available. What do you consider? I think everyone here has probably had the experience of going to Washington, to Maine Justice, to meet with the committee, explain the case, etc., Johnny, let me go back to you. Give me your sense of what that was like, maybe in the Fields case, and what they were interested in. Did you feel like you were sort of a partner or kind of the junior guy here, since it was really going to be the AG deciding? Tell us about the process for seeking it. Well, these guys probably dealt with it a lot more recently than I have. But yeah, the process is, uh, you know, hand in glove process generally. I mean, you know, I've always what do you felt mean by that meaning that you know a memo is written up by the line prosecutors that are you know, going to evaluate the facts. I mean, the, the number one fact is can you prove it? I mean, are you a hundred percent sure this guy did it and right. you can prove it? And is then, it any different? Prove it, the uh, the sort of burden of proof, even informally in a death penalty case, from the normal. Uh, in my of mind, it's a lot different. Uh, it's got to be much higher. I mean, it, 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 really, it's beyond really, reasonable really doubt is still the burden of proof. But in order to get, you know, 12 citizens to agree that this person needs to be convicted of a capital murder and then that they need to be, you know, ultimately, you know, return a punishment that ultimately results in the government taking their life, that means you have to be absolutely sure you have the right person. So especially in the the cities and the people that do a lot of murder cases, they're able to grade those up. You know, one of the worries sometimes is in the smaller communities that, you know, they never see a murder case and all of a sudden they get a really bad one. 
you know, there's a push for the death penalty because it's so gruesome. When I was a district court chief in Houston in the state system, I'd see probably 10 to 12 capital murders a year just in my court. And there's 22 different courts. So you could pick very carefully and you, you got to the point where you could evaluate what was actually a death penalty case and wasn't. And I'm sure that most people would look at those 10 or 12 death eligible cases that we saw and say, oh my gosh, every one of those deserves a death penalty. But we would say, no, actually only this one deserves a death penalty because we're 100% sure they did it. They have a terrible criminal record. It's going to be easy to prove future danger. And there's really no mitigating uh, circumstances. So that's kind of the big evaluation. Now, there are more specifics that I think these These guys guys can go into, but... I had a case like that where it seemed certainly to merit the death penalty based on the facts, but there was, you know, vestigial doubt. Did we definitely, definitely, definitely have the right guy? And that was the decision I had to make. And it was after determining that I was sure we did that we went forward to the department. You've done it most recently, I guess, Carmen. Tell us, you know, literally the kind of you and who else comes and whom do you meet with and are you given a protocol and what are you trying to show other than the facts of the case? What's it like? Well, it's a very thorough and thoughtful process. And I think as Johnny indicated, you have to be beyond all doubt sure that this is the individual. In the Boston Marathon case, the evidence was overwhelming. We had video of him placing the bomb that killed two of the victims in the cases. And so that was not an issue. I was very impressed with all the different tiers of review that existed initially. Give us us the brief overview of what you had to do. Immediately. First it went to you, and you made the decision that you were going to recommend it, yes? Or or actually, we don't even say... Quite frankly, that's that's part of the protocol, that that the U.S. attorney, the U.S. attorney's recommendation is confidential. You cannot say whether you... You know, All you right. presented so you a memo a recommendation, to seek or not to seek. But it came time then for you to go to Washington. But before I made the recommendation, there were different levels did. of review within the office itself, right. okay. and then Washington. All right. So tell us about the Washington part, because the, the levels of review within the office were your decision, right? What, that's about correct. What they were. At the end of the day, that's right. So tell us the process in D.C. And that, as far as you know, was exactly what happens in every capital case: Boston Marathon to to whatever Seven Eleven murder. That's correct. Okay, so tell um, us about it. Well, what, what happened with the department is we had been working with them from just the initiation of the explosions. The Capital Crimes Unit assigned an attorney, was working with us to talk through what's the, the what's process. What's the Capital Crimes Unit? It is a unit that all U.S. attorneys' offices have to work with whenever there is a death-eligible case to review the evidence. It's a, it's a main justice? Culture. It's a main justice. And who's on it? Do you know actually there's who's on the capital prosecutors from the criminal yeah. division? Yeah, there's actually a section in the criminal division of capital prosecutors, what Carmen's referring to. These are not necessarily the folks who review the cases. These folks actually assist in investigating and prosecuting death cases. Got it. Then there's the capital case review committee, which is a broader That's correct. group that does the reviews. Okay. That, and that, so tell us about that committee. So you work hand in glove with the, the capital crimes unit, and then it goes to the capital crimes section, and then the capital crimes review committee. The review committee determines whether or not they're going to recommend. They make a recommendation, uh, and they work closely with the chief, the head of the criminal division, and then they rec- make a recommendation to the deputy attorney general. The deputy attorney general, I think, takes a close look at everything that's been done beforehand and makes a recommendation to the attorney general. And they come back with questions, concerns, but the package that you deliver to the department is a very thorough package outlining the evidence, outlining the aggravating factors. Obviously, you highlight any mitigating factors that may apply, and then the recommendation. 
All right, well, if you remember back when you were on the other side of that table, Rod, describe if we had a picture. You know, you're sitting on one side, how many people on the other, who's with you, how long does it take, do you have the sense that it's conversational or you're almost talking to a court that's keeping, you know, its own counsel? What's it feel like when you're actually doing the process at Maine? If I could take a step back, Eric, because the U.S. attorney gets involved before the case gets to that review process in Maine justice. And the way the system is designed, the U.S. attorney's office has its own internal review process that often in cases in which there's a potential uh, of seeking death, where there's a serious consideration of seeking death, we typically would hold a conference with defense counsel in the U.S. attorney's office before we even got to with Washington. With defense counsel. Uh, yeah. And so we'd let them make their pitch. Uh, and then 90, 95% of the cases maybe even more, that initial recommendation by the U.S. Attorney's Office is the one that ultimately prevails with the Attorney General. So, uh, and of course... So, although it's secret, the recommendation by the U.S. Attorney prevails 95% of the time. And, Though, of course, those, that 5% must be some pretty interesting cases, well, come to think of it. what you have to keep in mind is a lot of them are, are relatively routine in the sense that you know, our federal prosecutors handling drug and violent crime cases are facing death-eligible cases all the time. And most of those cases, we do not seek death. So the majority of them are actually relatively straightforward. That decision is made in the U.S. Attorney's Office. Sometimes we don't even meet with the defense counsel. Uh, And then the case makes its way through the process. This process was put in effect initially by Janet Reno, who was responding to criticism about inequitable imposition of the death penalty and wanted to make sure they were all centrally reviewed in Washington. And what sort of inequities was she concerned about? She was concerned about differences in standards applied in different U.S. attorney's offices throughout the country and consolidating the review process with her. As you may recall, Janet Reno was very hands-on, somewhat (laughs) of a micromanager in the department. There have been several changes that I proposed in the past decade or so that have actually been... Uh, enacted in the existing the DOJ rules now in the manual. One that I proposed that was not adopted was that we really don't need the attorney general to review every one of these cases. Because if you look at the no-see cases, the cases where everybody consistently up the chain has determined that it's not appropriate to seek the death penalty, you're not going to find any cases where the attorney general personally overrules that. In my personal opinion, having been uh, in and around the AG's offices, they have a lot of other things to do rather than to rubber stamp routine cases. So the majority of the cases that come through the system uh, are no-seek recommendations uh, without objections, and they go through fairly quickly. It's- I guess I don't even know this. Is any, is any so charged that's, that there, you know, there are four or five death-eligible charges? Treason, you know, which happens well, now. There are a lot more now. And, and there are a lot, okay. <laughs> a lot but is any time that charge is out there, does the, does, do you have to go through the death penalty process? So it's based on charge. If any of the- Well, it's actually even more than that. Yeah. Uh, it, it's generally construed very liberally as potential charge. So yeah. if a defendant's potentially eligible for death, but you're not even charging a death eligible count, we're still supposed to consult with Washington about those cases, and sometimes they do wind up getting written up and going through the process, even though uh, you know, nobody believes there's any realistic likelihood of seeking yeah. death. Now, you said the majority, is it known or is it confidential, roughly speaking, the percentage of death-eligible cases in which the department winds up going forward with seeking death? I don't know the number. I'm not sure there's any reason why it would need to be confidential, but it, it's very small. You know, having been the deputy AG for two years, I saw them all coming up from throughout mm-hmm. the country, and uh, there are very few recommendations in favor of seeking the death penalty. 
Oh, by percentage. Okay. All right. And now I want to go back to Reno for a second, because I recall she was worried also about the uh, potential disparities in race, which people often bring up the race of defendants. Is there any part of the process that is that tries to be sensitive to that? Or is it just simply blind to demographic right. figures? Well, it's sensitive just in that respect to being completely blind. And in yeah. fact, the, the demographic considerations are sent to Washington in a separate sealed envelope so that the folks who are making the decisions do not have access to that information. So the idea is, obviously, you know, if you're in the front lines, you know the, the personal circumstances of the defendant. But the goal is to make the sure that... The review committee doesn't know the race of the defendant. That, that's correct. That data is included And so what in do you DOD do if the name is likely well, to identify? You, do you actually take steps to no you, you th- might be able to guess you know, based on name you might be able to guess ethnicity but the goal is to exclude it from the decision-making process and so it's not uh, expressly included in any point and the process as you can appreciate in the Department of Justice you know this this is a very professional process so it's really inconceivable to me that racial or any other inappropriate characteristics would yeah. be considered because they're focused on such a narrow slice of cases to start with where the facts are so egregious that there's a realistic probability of obtaining the death penalty. Yeah. You know, if I could just add to that, because I agree that you, you cannot give any due consideration, but I think given that there's a long list of different types of offenses that are death penalty eligible, but the feds really only seek it in a smaller number of cases, and a lot of those cases are very high profile, in which I think that the committee members would know who is the individual that they're considering as to whether or not that they're going to seek the death penalty, the department is going to seek the death penalty on. And by the way, I'll answer my own question a little. I I only went through it one time, but we were in a room. There were three of us. There were five people on the other side. But it certainly felt, I'm sure it's specific or particular based on who it is, but it felt much more like a conversation back and forth. Here's what the defendant will say. And by the way, they'll also hear potentially if the defendant wants There'll be a way for them and Maine Justice to to hear from them. So it it, it felt to me like a very, I, you know, it was quite clear who was going to make the final decision, but it was a very sort of collegial back and forth and very sort of pragmatic. How do you really purport to prove this? And and you know, what's your you know theory for this po- or response to this possible objection? I guess that segues into the point that Rod was making that, you know, in addition to the approval process, the department has resources specifically to offer offices. You know, there have not been that many prosecutions, so it's often pretty new to a federal office. And there are specialists who help in the specific prosecution of the case. So let me ask about that a little. And you know, so you've decided to bring it or to recommend or the attorney general has decided that it will be a death penalty case. Then some, you know, people from Washington show up and we're here from Washington and here to help. How does that work? What's it like within the office? What's the process when it comes to trying cases? Rod, you just lean forward so you have a, some right. thoughts here. Well, yeah, that help from Washington is welcome. These cases are very resource intensive. They tend to be very well defended. In, in, uh, yeah, tell us about that. How, uh, how, would, it, how would a uh, typical case in a community, right. you would probably know about this as well, Johnny, what, what kind of defense resources would be brought to bear, including mm-hmm. by constitutional guarantee? Right. Well, by constitutional guarantee, and more importantly, by federal statute, Defendants are entitled under federal law 
to two lawyers, where in the typical case, they'd be entitled only to one. And one of them uh, is required to be learned counsel, which is a statutory requirement that the attorney have death penalty experience. So these, there are a limited number of lawyers around the country who are death penalty certified in the early days, early 21st century, there would be not enough to go around. And so they tend to travel. But death penalty is much more common now, Harry, than it was in your days as U.S. attorney. And so yeah. all districts have uh, experience. Most districts have a lot of experience with these cases, but they still welcome those experts from Washington to help supplement our teams because the defense, in addition to having two lawyers, they tend to be very well funded with a variety of experts. These experts are very expensive the expert, cases. The expert battle in death penalty cases where the facts are normally laid down for the government can be huge, right? Yeah, and they're often uh, mental health issues that are raised, often pre-trial litigation over those sorts of things. So uh, we welcome support from Maine Justice. They have lawyers who are experts in the type of issues that arise, and they will assist us typically with the briefing, less frequently with trying the case, more frequently with the research and brief writing, uh, because they have access to those resources and experts in Washington. And what about, so we talk about often the real focus is going to be on sentencing. I don't think we've mentioned so far that under federal law, you have to have a unanimous jury for sentencing as well. Sometimes there'll be, I mean, there there are defendants who might plead guilty and move immediately to sentencing, but that becomes the main event, and that's got to be unanimous as well. Do the lawyers from Washington, you know, I assume they have, they have experience there. Do they actually stand up and carry the water in the trial in, a, in an individual office, or do they, are they simply advisors? How does it work, Carmen? You know, I think it depends upon the office. And in our case, for example, in, during the marathon bombing trial, we had very active participation. One of the folks from Washington was actually a, one of the trial members of the team and uh, had tried quite a number of death penalty cases, had experience especially in framing the key arguments for openings and closings, and did a tremendous job assisting the team in, in trial strategy, but also in presentation during the course of the, the first trial and then the, the second trial, because defendants you know, obviously have two, two and, trials. And by the way, so what about that? Everyone knows when they're trying a death penalty case, that, you know, 10 years from now, mm-hmm. the Supreme Court might overturn it for a reason that you can't even anticipate. What, if anything, do you try to do at the actual on the ground stage in front of a jury? Or do the do the people from Washington counsel you to do to insulate mm-hmm. the determination from appellate problems? Death penalty cases really have at least four distinct stages. In a sense, there are four different cases. First, if you file the death notice, there's pretrial litigation over the validity of the death notice. So you wind up with extensive litigation even before you get to trial. There, uh, they, there's actually a right of review for the, for filing the death penalty notice? I didn't think defendants No, it's would. not a right of review, but it's the litigation over whether the proper process was filed and over whether or not the defendant uh, has mental health issues that make him statutorily ineligible for death. We've had cases that have involved extensive pretrial reviews. So there's an entire stage of the case unrelated to guilt or innocence that occurs even before you get to trial. Then, of course, there's the, the guilt phase of the trial. But death cases really have two separate trials. Not only do we need to prove the defendant's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, we also, in death 
cases typically look to bring the death penalty only if there's no residual doubt. So these are cases yeah. where there's a very small probability of acquittal. So we're really preparing for a second trial. That's the death penalty stage, where, as you point out, we need the jury unanimously to vote in favor of death. And so as you're going through the first trial, you're thinking about not just what you need to convict the defendant, but what impression you're creating on the jury to prepare them for the second phase, that death phase of the trial. And then, of course, there's the post-trial phase, all the litigation, as you point out, that follows the death sentence and continues and lessen until the death penalty is ultimately imposed. Johnny, you've done this the most. You've been the actual state prosecutor, boots on the ground, asking for the death penalty at least three times, and you've gotten it. You've overseen it in the office. You've been in Maine, justice, looking at McVeigh, et cetera. What's it like? You know, I assume it's very sobering. You have, you know, conflicted feelings of both. Well, I'll stop right there. You t- tell us the sort of personal well, it's, experience it's probably, of, of, of seeking the ultimate sanction. It's a very, very serious situation. It's probably the most serious thing that the government does in the whole country. I mean, even, I guess, going to war is, is worse. But, I mean, you are making decisions about, you know, whether someone lives or dies, ultimately. That may be decades down the road. So it's a very somber situation. People take it very seriously. You know, I came out of Harris County DA's office in Houston, you know, back in the 80s and 90s. We, you know, we were one of the murder capitals of the United States. And, you know, there is a little bit of a gallows humor with the prosecutors that are down there because you see so much death, so much, you know, trauma to victims, and you're dealing constantly with parents of murdered children. So it's it's very hard. But you, you've got to just make good decisions, know that your paper is going to be graded for decades, you know that there's people on the other side that are true believers, I mean, that they really are going to fight hammer and tong till the very last second. And, and some of them are even to the point where they're willing to uh, bend the rules and cheat because they think they're in order to save this person's life, I'm willing to, you know, it's a greater cause. So you have to be really prepared to make sure that you've got all your ducks in a row. And it's, it's what Rod was talking about. It's going to be hard litigation from the very start to literally the moment of execution. So it's serious. I tell you one thing though, I, you know, people say, oh, well, it costs so much money and it's not worth that. I think there's a lot of misinformation there, especially in, in locations that do a lot of death penalty cases. You have judges that have tried a lot. You have defense attorneys that have tried them both many times as prosecutors and many times as defense attorneys. They're, you know, incredibly good lawyers that would in the free world would cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars to get that representation. And, uh, and oftentimes prosecutors that have tried this many times before. So uh, I think the idea that it's just this haphazard thing that costs us millions of dollars and should go away is wrong. Now, one other thing we're seeing is the number of times that people are seeking death is way off, way down. I think a big reason for that is the murder rate is way down. And I think that's kind of lost in the 24-7 media of, oh, we live in this incredibly dangerous society. You know, it's, it's, it's important, and I think it's something that everybody takes serious. I don't think any prosecutor at the end of a capital murder case you know, celebrates and jumps up and down, and I'm so happy. What they feel is relief that justice was served, in their opinion, but you know, it's just not, not a happy day for anybody that were there. A valued colleague to all of us, Chuck Rosenberg, has a terrific podcast called The Oath, and he just recently had an episode on the Masawi trial that Rob Spencer, a, a great prosecutor that many people know, had. And he talked about how, you know, this was a defendant reviled 
by everyone and the job that the defense attorneys did, who, of course, Massawi hated as much as all of American society, and at least the feeling at the end that the system had bent over backwards to make it the fairest possible trial. So, you know, that's one overlay to this, the whole cocktail of kind of emotions and somberness that you note is the feeling that all in all, there's quite a lot of attention paid to making this ultimate act by the government be as full and fair as possible. Thank you very much to Carmen, Johnny, and Rod. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, at TalkingFedsPod, to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can also check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segment. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jenny Josephson, Dave Moldovan, Anthony Lemos, and Rebecca Lopatin. This episode was recorded by Natalie Jones. David Lieberman is our contributing writer. Sam Trachtenberg is our research assistant. Production assistance by Sarah Philippoum. Transcripts by Matthew Flanagan. Thanks, as always, to the incredible Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.